Before we get started, a message from our friends at Keeley Companies. At Keeley Companies, they do things a bit differently. They proudly call themselves Keelians. They pride themselves on swag that will knock your socks off. They have a dedicated vice president of learning and education. They have their own philanthropic foundation called Keeley Cares. They empower every Keelian to speak up if they feel unsafe. They have the most competitive wellness challenges around. They are committed to being better leaders of diversity and inclusion. They aren't afraid to dream big. And in the words of my friend, Rusty Keeley, they're just getting started. Check out more information on them by going to KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. This may sound like I'm on repeat right now, but I'm not. What I'm about to say, though, are words you've heard me say before, but when you hear me say them and then you hear me say them again, I really mean them. Here they are. You are in for a treat today. You're in for a treat. If you are in a relationship, if you've been in a relationship in the past, or you think at some point in your future you may be in a relationship, and I don't, I don't even mean intimately necessarily. I mean any relationship at a home a parent-mother-father relationship, a sibling relationship, a work relationship, a relationship with your neighbor, someone who you agree or disagree with politically, any relationship. If you've ever been in a relationship, you're going to love today because we bring on a expert on relationships. His name is Gary Chapman. He is the number one best-selling author of the book, the Five Love Languages. He sold more than 20 million copies of these books around the world. He's an influential guy. He's a humble guy. He's a faithful guy. He's an incredibly astute and wise gentleman. And I asked him before we started recording, why have you been as successful as you have with these books? What is it about this message, man, that is so setting you apart? It's still, even today, decades after it first came out, it's in the top 10 of the New York Times week after week after week. And in fact, each week it grows. Why is that, Gary? And he said, John, there is a profound need in our lives right now for love, for love. So for those of you in relationships, you've been in them in the past, or you may at some point in your future end up in one, buckle up. Get ready for an awesome ride as we talk about forgiveness and redemption and grace and connecting and getting the kind of love that you want and giving the kind of love that others need because that's what we're, we'll be talking about today with my friend, and he is about to be yours. His name is Gary Chapman. Dr. Chapman, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. Well, my friend, for the Three listeners out of our entire audience who have never heard the name Gary Chapman. They've never <laughs> read the books that you've rolled out into the market shelf that have sold millions of copies, I believe in 50 languages all around the world. Would you share with those folks just a little bit about the work you've done in the past? 
Well, you know, I actually work on a church staff and I do marriage and family counseling. I've been on the same staff over 40 years. I live in North Carolina, uh, thus the accent. <laughs> and uh, all of my books really have grown out of the counseling office in trying to help people that I'm helping in the office and take those skills and those insights and share them with other people. And uh, it's been very, very rewarding to see the way God has used uh, the various books to help couples uh, have the kind of marriage they wanted to have, a loving, supportive, caring marriage, and parents, uh, how to be effective in raising children. So, mm. yeah, that's my life. Your life is remarkable. It's awe-inspiring, and we're going to talk about that life, not only some of the work of that life and what it means for us. I think a lot of us would benefit mightily from learning a little bit more about love, how to meet others where they are, how to look into the mirror and, and see love even in that reflection but rather than talking about your most recent work or your most recent counseling session or where you are right now in North Carolina, we're going to back up a little bit farther, all the way to China Grove. Little town <laughs> in North Carolina, man. The year is 1938. I could be wrong on this. I believe it one day after my mother's birthday, January 10th, a little boy is born, man. Talk about uh, what China Grove was like for you growing up. Well, it's not the China Grove the Doobie Brothers sang about, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's a small textile town uh, in North Carolina, about a uh, population of about 2,000 people when I was born, and 2,000 people now <laughs> hasn't grown very much. Almost everyone works in the textile mill. And uh, it was named for the Chinaberry tree, which is sometimes called the umbrella tree because it kind of looks like an umbrella, but it has berries on it. And as a kid, we would take those berries, they're about the size of a marble, and we would play war with slingshots and we'd shoot each other. <laughs> uh, but I grew up in a Christian home, uh, mom and dad and one sister, four years younger than I am. And uh, it was really a great, uh, a great childhood. Uh, helped my dad and mom work in the garden in the backyard in the spring and summer. Uh, learned the work ethic and helped my mama with washing dishes and canning fruit. And uh, it was a great childhood. So, yeah. Gary, you write a lot about what we learn about love or apologies or forgiveness or grace or faith or hard work or just about anything else we learn at home. And so I, I think your upbringing has a bit to do with the man you became and what you teach about today. So would you talk about your mom, what you learned from her, and yeah. maybe what you wish you would have learned from your mother, and then talk about your father and what you learned <laughs> from him. Yeah, no, no question about it. Uh, I really believe uh, that uh, my background at home, those years, 17 years I spent there before I went off to college, uh, greatly impacted my life. Uh, my dad uh, was not a Christian when my mother married him. And I've told her in adulthood, I said, Mom, that was not uh, too good. You married dad, he was not a Christian. She said, I know, but God took care of that. <laughs> and about two years after marriage, <clears throat> my dad became a Christian. And when he did, he was... He was a true Christian. And so when I came along, uh, my dad was a solid Christian. Mom and dad took us to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, usually every Wednesday night. And uh, I was involved in the, in the youth ministry at church. Uh, but uh, both of them worked in the textile mill. Hmm. My mother worked on the first shift, which was seven in the morning to three in the afternoon. And my dad worked on the third shift, which was 11 o'clock at night till seven in the morning. Hmm. And uh, the reason he chose that was so uh, he could be with us in the afternoon when my sister and I came home from school. And I think it was also because we could help him work in the garden. 
<laughs> Tell me what you were growing in that garden. <laughs> oh, we grew uh, okra and cucumbers and squash and turnips and potatoes and tomatoes and just all, all, all vegetables. We had a great, uh, uh, great time in the garden. And of course, we canned everything. Now, this was before, before freezers, all right? But uh, I think uh, seeing both my mom and dad with their work ethic, but also their deep commitment to Christ. And my dad served in the military, uh, and he would write letters home to my mother. This is the Second World War. And my mother would read those letters to my sister and I when we were just little, mm. you know, six years old or so. And at the end of the letter, he would always say to us, you know, be sure and obey your mother. <laughs> yeah. So he yeah. was having a word in, in our lives, even though he wasn't there at the moment. So, yeah. Dad is overseas. Dad is fighting. My grandfather, part of the greatest generation, would refer to that, that as the big one. He's in the yeah. midst of the big one. What do you remember from those days? Were you nervous about your dad being gone? Was it just part of the process of being a kid back in the mid-40s? What, what do you remember? Yeah, I think it was a part of the process. I don't remember ever being fearful you know, of, my, of losing my father. Uh, he was in the Navy. He was on a ship uh, in, the, in the Pacific. And really right after the war, it was a mine destroyer where they would uh, had a Japanese on, on board. They would go cut up the Japanese mines that were, that were already in the water and explode them, you know, uh, yeah. just, uh, you know, that was after the war was over. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think uh, I was never really fearful of that. Uh, mom and uh, mom always prayed with me and my sister. And as I said, we got letters from dad on a pretty regular basis. And mom wrote him every day. Yeah. And he said sometimes on the ship, he only get, he'd only get them about, you know, eight or 10 letters at a time when the mail came in. But he said, I read every single one of them. So, uh, it was a, it was a fearful, not a fearful, and not so fearful. But I remember everything was rationed, yeah. and I remember walking with my mother and my sister to the grocery store. We could only buy so many cans of this or that. Uh, gas was also rationed. You could only have five gallons. You could never fill up your tank. Uh, but you know, I, to me, it was just a way of life. You know, wh wherever you're born and as you as you grow up, that's your life. It's not that it's all that bad or good. It's just, it's just what it's, it is what it is. And, and the reason I'm starting this conversation today in this place is not only to learn a little bit more about what formed you into the man that you became, but also in a small way to remind people, because we keep hearing the word, Gary, unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this ever before. Times have never been as bad as they are right now. It's never been so divided, all this stuff. <laughs> and although these are difficult days, and although these are divided days, I think your childhood reminds you that we've been through difficult days in the past and that a person even wiser than you and me once wrote that uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's true. When you look back on my childhood and what we went through in those days, uh, was it worse than worse now than then? I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously physically the pandemic uh, was not there when I was growing up, but uh, uh, life was, life was fragile and, and you know we had to make do with what we had to do but um, every every generation has its own challenges and yes. that's why it's important that we walk with god whatever generation or whatever culture we're in put our hand in god's hand and uh, and we walk through it together speaking of walking with god you decide to walk with god all the way through university you go to Mo the moody bible institute for those who don't know what that is would you describe it 
Yeah, at that time, Moody was a three-year school. That's why they called it an institute rather than a college. And it was really designed by D.L. Moody, who was a, an evangelist like Billy Graham in, in his day in the 1800s. Uh, and he started this institute to train young men and women for Christian service. And so the program was designed like it would be a pastor's course or a missionary course or a, a youth course or a music course. Uh, so all the courses were designed to train you for a particular role in Christian ministry. And so I, uh, I majored in the uh, pastor's course because I really sensed God leading me into full-time ministry. And I only knew there was two things you could do. Uh, one would be a pastor, one would be a missionary. And in my mind, missionaries lived in the jungle and I didn't like snakes. So I thought, surely God wants me to be a pastor. <laughs> so uh, once I finished Moody, then I went on to Wheaton College to get my degree and spent two more years. Uh, because they accepted credits from Moody. And I majored in anthropology because mm. by the time I finished Moody, I really felt God wanted me on the mission field. You know, mm. why should I stay here when the great need was there? So uh, cultural anthropology is a great background for serving in another country. So uh, that's why I majored in anthropology. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment because we, uh, you never know where you're going to be led later on in life. You thought for a moment it was going to be in Nigeria, and we may not end up there. So before we talk about that turning point, let's talk about Carolyn. What, what was it about Miss Carolyn that you fell head over heels for? Well, you know, I have known her uh, as long as I can remember. We went to the same church growing up. In high school, I dated her best girlfriend. <laughs> and sometimes we double dated, you know, we double dated sometimes. Well, I went off to Moody and uh, my girlfriend uh, sent me a Dear John letter in six weeks and said, Chicago's a long ways away and I think we should go our separate ways. And, and uh, I was brokenhearted because I was in that in love stage, you know, and uh, I just prayed to God, oh God, change her mind, help her to see reality, help her to know how much I love her, you know. <laughs> Wrote her a letter telling her how she needs to rethink this, you know. And, uh, all to no avail. Uh, obviously, in retrospect, I'm glad that's a prayer God did not answer. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I was at Moody my freshman year and uh, went through all of that. And then I said, God, you got to help me. Uh, it's hard to concentrate because I'm so upset about this. And so I came here to study. So give me a heart to study. And he did. And I really didn't date anybody until I, I think my senior year, I had a couple of dates. But other than that, I just didn't date anybody, but I went home uh, on Easter of that senior year and went to church and the Carolyn happened to be there that morning and I saw her and I thought, wow, how did I miss her? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, we, we talked, you know, and I thought, man, I could hardly wait to go back to church that night to see her again. <laughs> I went back to church and uh, uh, asked her after service if I could take her home. And she said, well, I'm with my mother. And I said, oh, I'll take your mother too, because I knew they didn't have a car. And uh, she said, well, we have a ride. But she was just very cold, you know? And I thought, I don't know how she could be so warm in the morning and so cold at night, you know? Yes, sir. So I gave her time to get home and I just went up to her house and knocked on the door and asked her if I could come in and uh, talk, talk with her. And so she let me in. I found out her mother had given her a lecture on the way home that she should have let me bring her home. <laughs> And so that started our relationship and I found out that what she said was she had talked to her girlfriend that afternoon 
figured. Well, they were, yeah, and, and the girlfriend said, leave him alone because I'm in love with him. <laughs> and I told Carolyn, I haven't seen her in three years. How could you be in love with me? <laughs> right. At any rate, that started a two-year letter writing relationship because I went on to Moody. She went to school in Tennessee, and we exchanged letters for two years before we got married. You fall in love with this girl. You marry this girl, and you are about to travel with this girl. I believe, if I'm following your story right, to Nigeria, the very place that you were kind of afraid of the snakes and, and everything else. You're about to head there, and then she gets sick. Is that correct? Yeah, she uh, she had a really pretty serious uh, physical problem, and uh, I had, I had finished the PhD, and the reason I did that was so I could teach at a university or a seminary in Nigeria, and. Uh, so we applied to the mission board and uh, of course you have to go through a physical exam. And when they discovered her physical condition, they just said, you know, we can't, we can't send you to Nigeria. So we were just totally disappointed. And, and she was, she was feeling really badly because her perception was, you know, she was keeping me from going to the mission field. And so I felt, I felt for her, you know, kind of carrying that burden because I didn't see it that way. I mean, we were one, you know, and if we got rejected, we got rejected, you know. Uh, but it was a hard time for us because you know, I reasoned, you know, God, why did you let us go back for three years and get a PhD and all of that, and now you're going to close the door? Or maybe the mission board's messing up, you know. <laughs> so I went through all of that. We did, you know, and uh, really decided, well, if I'm not going to teach overseas, I guess I said teach here. So I applied to 27 colleges and there were no openings. And uh, then a little Bible college in North Carolina, I found out they had an opening or thought they did and I applied and got accepted. So I came to, I came to Winston-Salem where I live now uh, to teach in what was then called Piedmont Bible College. Uh, very similar to Moody Bible Institute in those days. And uh, so I taught there for three years and really, really loved teaching. Uh, and then I was invited to come to a church and head up the college ministry and uh, so I thought, man, I can work with college students and not have to do all the academic stuff. <laughs> so I've been here on the same church now for over 40 years. And for 10 of those years, I work with college students. Calvary Baptist, 22 years after starting there, you write a um, yeah, ordinary little book called The Five Love Languages. <laughs> At what point did you realize, man, I have through God's divine appointment created something that is going to touch lives in powerful ways and scale that impact around the world. Like when, when did you begin to realize this wasn't just a book for your community, but for the world? Yeah. Well, you know, when I wrote the book, I knew that the message would change lives because I had discovered it in my counseling. I'd been using it in my counseling for several years, uh, probably five, six, seven years. And I, I really knew it could change lives, but I had no idea what would happen. In fact, the first year, it only sold 4,000 copies. And then after that, every year, it just doubled and doubled and doubled. And uh, it's, it's been out like, I don't know, 27, 28 years now. And every year, it sells more than the year before, <laughs> which doesn't happen. You know, it has to be God. People ask me, how do I explain that? I say, well, the short answer is God. And the long answer is God. <laughs> That's all I know. I understand that you give God the credit for why you've sold 13 million in English, not to mention the 49 other languages that the book has been published in, which is just remarkable. 
Why do you think though individually it's had the impact that it's had? Why has it touched the marriages and the single people and the people who are addicts and the people who are away from home and all the lives that you've impacted through these five love languages? What is it about that simple little book and the process you unpack that is so monumentally important? Well, you know, John, I think on the human level, what's happened is, uh, you know, the, the heart of the book is designed to help people meet that deep emotional need to feel loved. And I think almost everybody agrees, Christians and non-Christians, that the deepest emotional need we have on the human level is the need to feel loved by the significant people in our lives. If you're married, the first one's your spouse. If you feel loved by your spouse, life is beautiful. If you don't feel loved by your spouse, life can look pretty dark. And with children, the question is not, do you love your children? The question is, do they feel loved? Hmm. And so what the love languages does is just reveal the reality that what makes one person feel loved doesn't make another person feel loved. So, you know, and I learned it in my counseling office where they would sit there and one of them would say, I just don't feel love. And the other would say, I don't understand that. I do this and this and this. Why would you not feel loved? So I knew people were sincere, but they were missing each other emotionally. And, uh, Really what I did was go through about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years of notes that I made and asked myself when someone said, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me. What did they want? What were they complaining about? Yeah. And the answers fell in five categories. So, uh, you know, I had used it in my counseling, used it in small groups and I really knew it would help people. And I think that's what's happened. People read it. It's like the lights come on. They discover each other's love language. They start speaking it and the whole climate is changed. And then they want their brother and his wife, their sister and her husband, and they start giving it to people. Yes. Uh, in fact, I've had young couples say, we got three copies of the love languages for a wedding gift <laughs> from three different people. <laughs> I said, well, maybe you'll read one of them. <laughs> uh, so a lot of people give it as wedding gifts, but they also just give it to people that they, that they care about because they'd helped them so much. Do you think it begins with us learning how to give love in a more effective way or to receive it? Well, you know, uh, love is essentially an attitude. And it's the attitude of how can I help you? Hmm. How can I make your life easier? Uh, how can I enrich your life? How can I help you accomplish, uh, you know, the things that you want to accomplish in life? It's an attitude. It's the opposite of selfishness. Selfishness approaches all of life with what am I getting out of this? And that's where we are as a culture. And that's why so many people will say that they're married. They've been married for seven, eight, 10 years. And they say, well, I'm just not happy anymore. Yeah. You just don't make me happy. So I, I can't stay here and be this unhappy. Uh, and so they bail out. Uh, but love is an attitude that, that, that wants to do what is good and best for the other person. Well, what, the love languages does is gives you the ability or the information on how to do that effectively uh, so that you're not just, you know, loving in the way you think it would make them feel love, but you're loving in the way that they know would make them feel love. And so when you start speaking each other's primary love language, uh, really what, what I call the love tank, the emotional love tank fills up and uh, you feel loved. So people ask me, you know, can you love without feeling it? And my answer is sure. It doesn't begin with a feeling. That's right. Now, 
falling in love begins with the feeling, you know, but that's temporary. It has an average lifespan of two years and we come down off the high, but, but loving starts not with a feeling. It starts with an attitude. And mm. then you find out how to express it in a way that touches the other person emotionally. So you meet that need to feel love. So, uh, yeah, you, you begin with the attitude, then you find out how to communicate it emotionally to the other person. All right, my friends, we'll be right back with our guest. But first, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies wholeheartedly believes that if you get the right people, the results will follow. They set themselves apart with a forward-thinking culture that empowers their people and fosters loyal partnerships. They are also proud sponsors, partners, and super fans of this podcast. And now, back to this week's guest. Dr. Chapman, in, in 2018, Cigna ran a national study that found that 56% of our population felt isolated, like they were doing life by themselves. They ran that same study in 19, and it went up to 61%. And then COVID-19 shows up and forces us to be quite literally isolated. So we're seeing right now that the majority of Americans feel isolated, and that's before we have COVID-19. That's before we are forced to live indoors and away from one another. Why do you think that so many of us feel so isolated and, and uh, removed from love? Yeah, I think it's because uh, we don't feel loved by the significant people in our lives. And then consequently, we're, we're moving. We're a culture that's moving. We're not moving so much now in COVID, but you know, we're, we're a moving culture. And uh, so you go to a new place and you don't know anybody there. And you didn't feel loved by the people from, that you came from. And now you're here with strangers. And so I think it's tied to this, this thing of the lack of love. You know, all of us are greatly influenced either by the impact of love or, or the, the, the absence of love. We're greatly impacted by that. And uh, so, yeah, you're right. Uh, loneliness is a huge problem. In fact, I was reading that, I think it was 1919, when the United Kingdom, England, actually uh, appointed a, uh, what was it called, an ambassador to, of loneliness or something like that, uh, because it's such a national problem there. Uh, but I think it's tied to the fact that, uh, that we're not emotionally connected uh, in, in the culture. So as we move toward our uh, appropriate time together, it, it also seems right now, not only are we isolated, we're less open to the opinions of those around us, in particular from those who feel differently on any issue than you and I might feel, whatever that issue might be. We cancel them out immediately and we move in the opposite direction. Yeah. During a time, Gary, when it seems more important, maybe than ever, to come together, to work together, to accept and love together, how would you encourage our listeners and me to, <laughs> to be open to the yeah. opinions and the beliefs of those around us? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, there's no question about it. Year, several years ago, the sociologists were saying ours has become an argument culture. Well, it's more than that now. It's, it's, a, it's a warfare culture. But rather than loving each other, we're fighting each other. If you disagree with somebody, you try to destroy them. Uh, and, and it's become a way of life for the culture. It's, it's one of the most tragic things I've, I've observed in my life. Uh, because love is not trying to destroy people, even if you don't agree with them. Love is trying to help people, you know, and to understand people. Uh, love leads us to sit down and talk with people with whom we disagree and try to find a meeting place. Listen, human conflict is inevitable. Even in marriage, no, no couple will get married and not have conflicts for the simple reason that we're individuals. 
and we have we have a different history and we have uh, we have a mind and we think differently we feel differently we're unique and so every couple will have conflicts in a marriage and in a culture we will always have conflicts because we're not ever going to agree on everything but we can treat people with dignity and respect and you know from the christian perspective we believe that every single person is made in the image of god they're extremely valuable god loves them god wants to have a relationship with them and and so if we're putting people down and calling them names and trying to destroy them we're working against god rather than working for god and uh i don't know i i can't imagine why people want to do that in the first place except that we are all to use a biblical word we're all sinners and we're certainly acting like sinners in today's culture uh, rather than people of love so uh, the ultimate answer from my perspective is if people come to know god in a personal way their life is going to be transformed and rather than living selfish and rather than having an anti-spirit and trying to put people down we're going to reach out to find out how we can help people and how we can lift people up and how we can work together as a team. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if that can happen unless our, our hearts are absolutely transformed because by nature we are selfish and, uh, and you know, and selfishness leads to combat uh, against people rather than helping people. Gary, I, I uh, have seven questions that we utilize to tie all of our interviewees together. And, and uh, I'm honored to walk you through these, Quick seven questions. The very first one I would imagine you'll have an answer for it is what is the best book you have ever read? Oh, behind you, you got all kinds of books, man. So, and I got another room on the next door, uh, next room beside me, another two walls filled with books. <laughs> Boy, I don't know. I don't know that I could even answer that question. No, but the best book you've read recently. That's hard too. I tell you one I like the best that I was a co-author in. <laughs> Humble brag and bring it on. I wrote it because I'm a co-author. It's a book for young men, approximately ages 11 to 18, uh, called Choose Greatness. 12 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. And I wrote it with an African-American friend of mine. We've been friends since he was 14 years old. His name is Clarence Schuler. He lives in Colorado Springs now and has, has, has accounts for himself and written books himself. But I, I was just so encouraged in writing that with Clarence as we shared our story and tried to say to young men, the decisions you make in these years between 11 and 18 are going to greatly impact the rest of your life. And so we're, we're hoping that we can help young men who otherwise would make poor decisions and really destroy their lives before they get started help them make wise decisions in those years. So um, I'm really excited about that book. I, I have not read it and it's uh, going to be on my list. It's also going to be on the list for my three boys who I expect and hope will choose greatness <laughs> as well. Gary, question number two is what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy in North Carolina that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Well, you know, I was pretty easygoing. Uh, in those days, uh, I was not a person of, uh, you know, combat with people. I enjoyed people and mm. loved playing in the backyard, uh, you know, with, unless it would be maybe a little more, uh, not as busy, you know, mm. as busy as I am now. Uh, not that I feel, I, mean, I feel like I'm kind of balancing it all, but, uh, those are kind of carefree days, you know? Uh, and so, uh, maybe, maybe I wish I had a little more relaxed, 
and maybe not quite as pressured uh, as, as my, my life is today. Gary, if, if your home caught fire, your family and your pets are all outside safe, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one thing, what, what's that one thing that you have clenched in your hands when you return back outside? <laughs> It'd probably be the Bible that I'm reading right now. You know, I wor I've worked through several Bibles through the years, chapter, you know, just a chapter a day, as I said. Uh, but right now, I'm in Deuteronomy in the, in the chapter of the Bible that I'm reading right now. I'd probably grab that because that, then I'm still on track. Not that I couldn't get another Bible somewhere else. If you could sit on a bench on a perfect North Carolina day and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you love to be seated right next to? You know, I, I probably would choose a man I never met. Uh, his name was Dawson Trotman. He's the founder of The Navigators, a Christian organization. And uh, I read his story, Born to Reproduce. And the whole concept is just one person leading another person to Christ and spending time with them until they grow to the point where they lead someone else to Christ and you stay with them and you just multiply, uh, bring people into the family of God. Uh, uh, as I say, I read his story, I never met him. Uh, I have been influenced by people whom he influenced. And I think I'd just love to say that I'll just chat with him about his whole life. What's the best advice you've ever received, either from him, from a parent, from his spouse, or from any of your research that you've done in any book that you've done it in? So what's the best, best advice you've ever received? I think it would be to uh, recognize that uh, if you're going to accomplish anything worthwhile in life, uh, you will have opposition and there will be people that will disagree with you. And treat them with kindness, treat them with dignity, hear, hear them out, uh, listen to them, try to understand where they're coming from, try to affirm their feelings because they had a history and, and, and they've been formed, uh, you know, by some, somebody or, or things that have happened in their life. Right. So treat them with dignity, respect, and listen to them and try to learn from whatever the criticisms happen to be. I think that's probably one of the best, uh, best words of advice I've, I've ever received. And Gary, if you could whisper some advice into the ears of a 20-year-old version of Gary Chapman, what, what advice would you give yourself at age 20? I think I would say make the most of that season. You know, uh, sometimes we, we are living in the future. We think about what we're going to do, you know, when I get the next degree or I get the next place on my job. Uh, and I think we often miss out on the present because we're focusing on what we're going to do in the future. I would say make the most of where you are uh, in the 20, in the 20 years, the 20s, in the 20s, and, and give yourself to both learning and, and helping people. Don't wait, don't wait for five or 10 years before you're gonna serve people or you're gonna do something worthwhile. Do something worthwhile now. Invest your life in people now, trying to help people at every season of life. And if you do, you know, then when you move along, you'll still be doing it, you know, 20 years from now. But don't wait to uh, try to accomplish something worthwhile. Uh, be doing it as you move along while you're lear learning. You're both learning and serving at the same time. Dr. Gary Chapman, husband, father, son, student, teacher, professor, pastor, counselor. <laughs> 
author, radio host, friend, and a whole lot of other tasks. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? If they were on the tombstone, <laughs> I would like it to say, faithful unto death. <laughs> Indeed. Gary Chapman, faithful unto death. It has been an honor following you for years and now being able to call you a friend. Thank you for spending some of your day with us. Well, thank you, John. I've enjoyed the conversation. It's been our pleasure. My friends, that is Dr. Gary Chapman. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired.